Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me is Dr. Jesse Keenan of Tulane University. Jesse is returning to complete his assessment of the rest of the Federal Climate Adaptation Action Plans. In the first part of the series, we covered 10 departments. In this episode, we cover most of the rest, like the Department of Interior, the Justice Department, NASA, GSA, the State Department, and a few others. We also cover Prepare, the President's Emergency Plan for Adaptation and Resilience. And we close out our conversation discussing national adaptation plans and why it's so problematic that the United States does not have one. Jesse does a lot of heavy lifting in this episode. I know you're going to enjoy it. If you're new to this podcast and you're catching up on all things adaptation, definitely take a look in the podcast library. We have covered a lot of ground that will catch you up on many of the most important adaptation issues coming up. Managed retreat, climate reparations, climate impacts on the LGBTQ community, climate finance, national security, indigenous issues, legal implications associated with adaptation, and nature-based solutions to resilience. That's just scratching the surface. Definitely take a look in the podcast library. Okay, upcoming episodes? Folks from the United Nations Environment Program come on to discuss their new adaptation podcast, Resilience, the Global Adaptation Podcast. Always love promoting other climate podcasts and we'll talk shop around international adaptation. Also returning is Laura Shifter from the Aspen Institute who will give us an update on the work she's doing with K-12 Climate Action, which is bringing climate change into school curricula around the nation. Also coming on is Cal Inman, founder of Climate Check. We're going to discuss some of the new tools available in the real estate sector helping people plan for climate change. Yes, many great episodes in the pipeline. Okay, let's complete this two-part series on the Federal Adaptation Action Plans with Dr. Jesse Keenan. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Returning again to the pod is frequent guest, Dr. Jesse Keenan. Jesse is an associate professor of real estate at the School of Architecture at Tulane University. Welcome back, Jesse. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Doug. So let's give some context here. You're back as part of this two-part Federal Climate Adaptation Plan series. And so we're going to dig into episode two. And let me give my own little context, and then I'm going to let you sort of provide a bit more. And so if this is the first time someone's listening of the two episodes, just we want to ground you a bit. We're taking a deep dive on the recently released climate adaptation plans. And so all federal departments were required to develop a plan, and these are out. And Jesse has gone through each of these to provide his own analysis, looking at the strengths and weaknesses. So in that first episode, we got through 10 of the departments, and now we're finishing the job in this episode. So in case you were looking for departments like Justice Department or Department of Interior, we're going to do it in this one. Okay, Jesse, I want you to elaborate on that. Can you just ground people again? What are these adaptation action plans and what are we doing in the second episode? Yeah, well, listen, welcome to part two. This has been an exhaustive effort because we're going to look at uh, the balance of these adaptation plans and climate action plans. And then we're also going to pull in a little bit about what's happened at COP26 and give that a little bit of context because there's a very strong interplay between our obligations, for instance, under the Paris Accord with adaptation what's happening at State Department with adaptation, what's happening at the Treasury, et cetera, et cetera. All of those activities that we're going to talk about today are actually playing out in different ways in COP26. And then finally, we have this Build Back Better bill, and we're going to try to find some opportunities to connect where these various ambitions of the agencies and departments relate to flows of resources and money that are going to help push some of these things forward. So it's very exciting. We're going to try to cover a lot today, but we're not going to name names. We're going to keep that tradition going. Going and try to pos- 
position some of the strengths and some of the weaknesses of these things and, and recognize that uh, we're in a stage of learning and a sort of developmental maturity and we're all in it together. All right, before we get started into this heavy lifting, I just when Jesse normally gets on, we like to spend a moment or two talking about the Florida Gators and the University of Georgia Bulldogs and the football teams and when they play. But we're not going to do that because that would be pretty depressing for me. Well, I just want to acknowledge that things are going well in Athens, all things considered, a number one team in the country. <laughs> oh, you. <yeah. laughs> all day. DC championship. Florida just looks terrible. Your head coach is really dragging. I mean, I don't know where to begin or end with this other than our general football superiority. Okay, Jesse, let's get away from those nasty thoughts and let's jump into one of these departments. We're going to talk first about the General Services Administration, or as it's affectionately known as GSA. What's going on there? Right. So GSA is really among the leaders in the federal government and has been for many, many years. And their plan here is called or entitled rather climate change risk management plan. And right off the bat, in terms of organizational management, the deputy administrator is listed as the senior climate change adaptation official. This is a some new nomenclature here that we, we haven't seen in other plans, but I like it. And I like where that is positioned within an executive climate action council. So they're looking at a wide spectrum of vulnerabilities to assets, including supply chains, utilities, transportation, communications, historical, cultural dimensions. I mean, you just think about the enormity of what the uh, GSA is responsible for in terms of assets and investment. They have their own obligations and their own commitments in this context relating to environmental justice and working with the White House's Environmental Justice Interagency Council, and particularly in terms of procurement, but also impact. They're integrating or in, there's a certain ambition there to integrate climate consideration into a vast array of contracts from leases to energy commodity agreements. And that's something I think will be a model for other agencies as well. But there's also really interesting little tidbits along the way and things like, um, for instance, technological investments. The idea of having telematic devices and assets like vehicle fleets to mitigate damage for extreme events, right? You you know that there's, hey, I have a bunch of GSA cars that are in a flood zone. We're about to have a flood. Maybe we should move those cars, which by the way, has been an issue for many entities in the past. I remember a bus fleet or two getting wiped out by a flood along the way. So that's a really interesting way to think about it, sort of new technologies. Of course, the kind of standard approaches to integrating vertical data, to integrate into portfolio management databases, right? Integrating the data, the exposure level data, and thinking about this across a portfolio. But I think the most important thing that the GSA is up to, and I think this is something that translates across the country and is particularly relevant for state and local governments, is they are intending to implement the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, the TCFD. We'll talk a little bit later about what TCFD is doing and what's perhaps not doing, but it is really now the universal global standard for climate risk disclosure. And this is among public and private sectors. This is mostly historically having been led by the private sector, but now governments are trying to figure out how they approach TCFD, how they think about their own disclosure and their own uh, internal assessments and how they memorialize that, how they develop scenarios to support it, et cetera, et cetera. Super important, right? Because what the GSA will do in, for instance, developing their own scenario analysis to help guide different potential outcomes and different types of physical and transition risks, which we'll come back to a little bit later 
later today. It's just critically important because it's going to have downstream effects in how others across the federal government, state and local governments fall in line. And understanding vulnerability, measuring different types of risks and uncertainties is critically important for understanding the allocation of resources. So this is perhaps one of the most impactful adaptation initiatives, I would argue, across the entire federal government. Okay, what else are they doing? Well, they've already evaluated 100 plus capital projects for climate risk, thinking of working with uh, USGCRP, US Global Change Research Program, to develop you know, EISs or environmental impact statements that consider climate risk mitigation and adaptation, as well as the cost-benefit analysis of savings. And I think there's a real analytical ambition here. Um, They mentioned it was something called the Building Assessment Tool, BAT, to measure the kind of dollar value of climate liability now and over, let's say, in 10, 20-year increments. So I think it's really smart to begin to think about the life cycle analysis of assets and buildings in particular, to think about what resilience and adaptation investments are really worth to you. So I think across the board, that type of life cycle analysis is critically important. And ultimately, these guidelines and these applications of TCFD, that is how we disclose climate risks, are going to resonate across the entire federal government. So Jesse, my experience working in the federal government back in D.C., it's been a while this during the Obama administration, worked with GSA. They had some amazing people. And But maybe you could just speak very briefly to when we see these adaptation actions within these federal agencies now, how are um, departments like uh, GSA doing in respect to what they did before to now that it seems like some groups are almost starting from scratch. Do you have a sense that there was some continuity and some departments better than others? Yeah, and we've, we have talked about that, and I think we will continue to talk about that. I think what we see at the GSA is a consistent drumbeat of issue awareness but also analytical development that is co-aligned with what's happening outside, really globally, right? And this is, if we're going to be a global partner with countries of the world and heck, a global a partner with just states and local governments, which we'll talk about, you really have to keep up with what's on what's happening on the street, right? And TCFD is a perfect example of really capturing something that is of the moment that requires a lot of co-developed analyses and integration of data and scenarios and things like that, that you couldn't really get to that point without having done a lot of the background work. So I think we're sort of reaping the benefits of really spent 10 years probably at GSA of developing this, developing the institutional capacity to now take advantage of what is, for instance, an emerging standard set of, or standardizing set of procedures and, and, and processes. So I think this really reflects probably the highest order of accumulated knowledge and expertise within any agency. Okay. So this next department that we're going to talk about, I'm very excited about. We were done with the first episode and it occurred to me, wait a sec, we haven't done Department of Interior. And for those who don't know, and I've mentioned many times, I used to work in the climate change response program in the National Park Service based in DC. I was the liaison and attending all these meetings and I have to do DOI. And so here we are in episode um, doing it. So what's going on there? Well, we have the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Policy and Environmental Management as the lead official. Good, let's start off strong with a senior uh, official with the capacity to lead. Here, they're talking about the integration of climate mitigation, biodiversity, environmental management, and adaptation, right? And I think that's critical for mainstreaming, right, and and adaptive management and understanding that each one of these worlds of mitigation, biodiversity, 
environmental management adaptation, they have their own institutional cultures, their own languages. And of course, here, a very important uh, representation of the acknowledgement of traditional knowledge in the management of the environment. So right off the bat, I think there's a real sensitivity to the, the, the cultural and institutional domains and their necessity to work together. And I think that's a very nuanced perspective that could be very well be productive. There's an extensive review in here of vulnerabilities, but also an acknowledgement that there's different projection scenarios and sort of ongoing programming to bring some order to that. Here, the ambition, like others, is to integrate risk management with accounting. And they very precisely highlight natural capital accounting. And I think that's a critically important aspect here. Uh, we're not just thinking about you know financial capital exclusively as the measures from which we adjudicate cost and benefit, but we're thinking and accounting for the ecosystem services as well. And I I didn't see any cross um, reference here to FEMA, but oddly enough, FEMA has actually done some interesting work in this in terms of national capital accounting. And I I would hope along the way that they'd be able to draw um, those connections. Hazard and risk management of facilities, and they've got their own kind of data platform, the Strategic Hazard Identification Risk Assessment, SHIRA, I think it might be pronounced. And I kind of wonder with this and others, as different agencies, agencies and departments progress with their own hazard identification sort of risk assessment modules or platforms. I guess there's some value in doing it within the unique vernacular of their own assets here, which are quite broad. But I also wonder if there's an opportunity to really integrate this with what GSA is doing as well. And in fact, GSA very well may learn from some of the natural capital accounting aspects that Department of Interior is working on. So I'm hoping that there is some capacity there for alignment along the way. So let's talk into just jump into some of their adaptation action ideas or plans. The first one is a priority, which is climate resilient lands, waters, and cultural resources. When you get into this, that's the titling. When you get into this, it's really a very heavy focus on conservation and restoration. And again, what's not here, and I'm sure is on the minds of many people working within DOI, is you know, to what extent are we thinking about ad- adapting to true shift in ranges and to, from which biological adaptation and phenotypic adaptation are represented in range shifting or other measures which may be less responsive in terms of, let's say, natural variability? And to what extent do we have any capacity to engage in these broader complex adaptive systems? And what is conservation in particular? What does that really mean in the context of these rapidly changing systems? So that's a kind of very critical area of, of debate and dialogue. And it's course, not well represented here. And I would hope that there would be some sensitivity to this. And I think we can have a lot of faith that people at DOI are are not necessarily struggling with that, but I think uh, engaged in that debate. There's uh, action item two or adaptation action item two is climate equity. And here we're talking about collaboration facility with job training and education, critically important, um, using environmental justice screening tools and data gaps for the allocation of their own resources and and ensuring that the agency, like DOD had highlighted, doesn't increase vulnerability somewhere along the way, Uh, that the maladaptive implications, if you will. Adaptation action item number three is a transition to resilience, clean energy or resilient, clean energy and thinking about uh, climate resilient infrastructure. Sort of vague here, evaluating balanced resource use and, you know, talking about mapping the capacity for public lands for renewable energy development. I I mean, I I understand the, the ambition there, more formally aligned with climate mitigation than climate adaptation. Supporting the next action item is supporting tribal and insular community resilience and providing technical assistance 
assistance to support adaptation strategies and really ensuring that tribal leadership is part of the resilience decision making. You know, I've said this before and I'll say it again. Some of the best climate adaptation and community resilience work in this country has been advanced by tribal communities. And in fact, we'll look back a little later today and we'll talk about the Build Back Better bill and the extent to which there is some funding coming down the pipeline to further support that. Finally, and this is an important one in terms of adaptation action area number five, development, conservation, and resilience workers. And here, the whole idea is how are we going to put the civilian climate core to work? How do we develop an internship and create a job pipeline, which is critically important? I think for many of us that struggle to think about diversity and engaging a broader population in terms of the workforce and particularly in underrepresented jobs, how do you develop the internships, the support mechanisms, just the application processes? All of those things are, are very much caught up into fuller participation and accessibility in our economy. And I think they have a real sensitivity to that. And finally, and I love this, supporting more academic programs, right? Because if we're going to develop the curriculum and we're going to train a workforce and we're going to get out there and do things, I think we need critical analytical skills to be able to understand the trade-offs and the impacts of our actions and activities. As I'd mentioned, I'd worked at DOI and I was in the thick of a lot of those plans. And as you know, DOI is kind of odd that you have the different, you know, Bureau of Land Management, National Park Service. There's a lot of independence within those agencies within DOI. They're kind of loosely under this umbrella of DOI. What's yeah. your sense of the various agencies? Because, you know, when TOI would say something, I can say this after the fact, it was sort of aspirational. It was sort of loosely followed by the various agencies in the National Park Service often running, really doing some progressive climate work at the time, but other services, not so much. What's your sense of how this actually empowers those separate agencies to kind of do these things? You know, I'm not sure. That's a super good question. I think there's some real value to allowing these separate units to have some autonomy and freedom. It allows them to experiment, develop it on their own terms, right? There's a very unique set of conditions and cultures within each one of these agencies and their underlying mission, the diversity of their underlying missions. I don't really, I, I, I don't get a strong sense here that this strategic plan in a way would impair the value of that autonomy or independence. And in fact, I think that uh, in many ways, there's a strong sense of coordination here that may be productive, but not necessarily draconian in rewriting the rules of what their missions are. So I I would really kind of come away. It's hard to know. And often this is dependent, as you've observed many times on leadership. But I think so far it looks good. And I think it, it, it respects the fact that there is these divisions But again, as we understood during the Trump administration, having that autonomy on some level is good for continuity of experience in different administrations. So I think there's an institutional strength there, not a weakness. Well, I think it's good and bad. Some of the agencies, they didn't feel much peer pressure if the other agencies were really getting aggressive around climate change. And so we'll hopefully DOI will prod them a little bit harder this time around. All right, let's pivot. And this, I'm very interested about this. I think it's interesting that how would this department, the Department of Justice, approach adaptation? So what are they doing? 
Yeah, so here we have the uh, U.S. Department of Justice Climate Action Plan, and it feels like a legal brief immediately when I when I open this up. Okay, so they're checking the box on climate literacy training among employees, facilities, infrastructure engineering, or engineering resilience, rather, for their underlying infrastructure, supply chain resilience, et cetera, et cetera. Big focus here really on operations and critical mission continuity, right? It, law enforcement, chief law enforcement, entity of the United States, I think we can recognize the value of that. They're thinking about, you know, I think somewhat superficially environmental justice implications for adaptation activity. I mean, I think it's well intended, perhaps not as well fleshed out. I'm going to come back to that in a second, why I think that is. There's a study of electrification of DOJ's fleet here. And, you know, it's, it is what it is. It's mostly about business continuity or a continuity of operations rather. And, you know, it's well done, well drafted, at least it's proofread. And we'll come back to later. There's some (laughs) folks that aren't necessarily proofreading. And this is what we should hold ourselves to as the first order of quality control. Control, but it's there, you know, I think, and it is, it's substantive. This is where I think what's missing in my mind. I think this is worth talking about. One, I would have anticipated that there would be more allocation of resources to the Environment and Natural Resources Division because there's a lot of environmental crime out there and a real lack of resources to investigate, enforce, and prosecute. When you look into the uh, Environment and Natural Resources Division's you know, what are, what are they up to? One of their biggest news items, I, I love this one, it's trafficking tropical cats. And like, I get it. Trafficking tropical cats, I, I mean, I get it. That's a problem, right? It's, I don't want to diminish the value of that level of prosecution. But if we're really serious about environmental justice in this country, there's a lot of environmental crime out there that deeply impacts communities, environmental justice communities. And hey, let's put our money where our mouth is here and really amplify some of those underlying resources. I mean, when you look at what the FBI is doing in this context of, uh, um, let's say, infrastructure and resilience and all that, I mean, most of their focus historically has been on protecting infrastructure from environmental activists. And no doubt that's a real risk, but I think we need to get in further and make some real investments uh, in the full range of things that are going to come along with climate change, you know, because with climate adaptation, just climate change in general, I mean, we're going to have everything from like criminal level fraud for sustainability and greenwashing all the way up to, you know, toxic uh, pollution related dumpings, which is a huge problem. So we need more expertise and we need more resources at both the FBI and the Justice Department working on environment and natural resources, period. I don't see that commitment here or that focus. Now, maybe this isn't the document to do that. Maybe this isn't the time to do that. This is my opinion, but I think it's, it's clear that we need some deep thinking about investigation and enforcement and prosecution. There's a few other things missing in here. Prisoner or field agent health with extreme heat. That has come up uh, in other contexts, with pr- particularly with prisoners. Usually the pres- uh, federal prison system is, is pretty well invested in in terms of quality of place, all things considered. But at the end of the day, I just I want to come back to this idea that, you know, there's CEQ has an EJ mapping tools. And, you know, could we utilize that to begin to prioritize prosecution and enforcement? Yeah, I, I probably think so. I, you know, and I, I just don't think we've fully internalized environmental justice as a prosecutorial priority. And I think in the context of resilience and adaptation, there's some very cogent relationships there that that are just are not here. And, and again, maybe this isn't the place 
maybe this isn't the time. But I think this is the opportunity to really think critically about that. And good people, like good people all around, right? We just need to reshift and reorient ourselves around different priorities. Okay, so you've talked about this a lot, maladaptation. Are you seeing that language at all in their plan? I guess what I mean is as cities and communities start doing adaptation, the sort of civil rights implications of some of these actions, is the Department of Justice even thinking like that? I I don't think so, right? And I mean, yeah, civil rights implications. When you look at Fair Housing Act violations in the United States, there's about 30,000 Fair Housing Act violations that are recorded formally as complaints. I think on average, you're going to see about five DOJ settlements in the United States for systematic housing discrimination. So let's just think about the context from which we have some measure of climate migration and shifting demography and resource constraints around housing and housing discrimination associated with populations, particularly after disasters, which we know is a thing. I mean, like you can begin to think about the machinations of economy and society and the extent from which criminal activities, discriminatory activities, and those other types of behaviors from which there is right for investigation and prosecution are, are, are not really contextualized to climate change. And I think that's a challenge. I think they're just discovering how they're going to get dragged into the issue of adaptation that they, they can't even predict at the moment. But on that note, let's pivot. We're going to go talk about the Department of Labor now. Okay. Department of Labor. I think there's a rule that you can't change the seal on a federal agency or department and change its color. And they they made it green. It looks good. I like it. And I, I just want to go back to, <laughs> I like it when um, they put some effort into graphic design because it speaks to internal communications. It speaks to your commitment to think in integrated terms. I think it actually says a good bit. But here we have the uh, Department of Labor's Climate Action Plan. Again, well-designed. Marty Walsh, Secretary Marty Walsh, leading the charge here. And what we see are a number of priority adaptation actions. One, and this is a big one, ensuring worker safety with OSHA, particularly as it relates to extreme events and the recovery from those extreme events. And I think there's a lot of interesting opportunities. We're getting better and better just research out there, observing impacts associated with public health and uh, human health, environmental health that relate to climate change. And I think OSHA has quite a task ahead of it. Action area number two, resilience and mission readiness. So again, facilities, internet communications. Actually, what's unique here is a real smart acknowledgement that this is going to cost staff time and they're going to have to refocus their costs. It's the first plan that I've seen which says, you know what, we're going to have to really reorient our administrative focus to be able to fully account for this. I think a lot of other agencies are like, think that, well, we're just going to mainstream this and it'll be part of our management performance reviews and Yeah, I mean, on some level, that is one way to think about the change management dimensions here. But here, I think there's a real upfront acknowledgement that, yeah, this is going to be extra staff time and there's costs associated with this and we need to plan accordingly. Next, there's the workforce training for really an energy transition. And critically important. I think what's missing here for me is that there's a ton of jobs associated with adaptation and construction, maintenance, engineering, advanced manufacturing. There's a lot that speaks to adaptation as a kind of broader applied field or economy, 
And there's a lot of working and thinking about this. So it isn't just the kind of energy transition in terms of particular community in West Virginia. It's actually something quite broader. And I didn't really see that represented here. And I think that's actually a real opportunity going forward. Just a quick plug for the existing plan for Governor's Island, which is soliciting different groups of folks to invest in Governor's Island to create essentially a climate adaptation hub for research and development, uh, job training and the like, and something I've been very privileged to help guide along the way in one capacity or another. So, you know, there is actual robust thinking out there about what adaptation means in terms of training education for both skilled and semi-skilled workers and unskilled workers. Okay, the next adaptation action area uh, priority is community economic resilience. Again, it's kind of thinking about this the, the transition aspects of this. Economic resilience is not really a thing in economic. The kind of global equilibrium dimensions of economics are beginning to reject the sort of stationarity of key deterministic variables or tunable economic policy measures from which we can think about the processes of resilience. So really what they're talking about here is community resilience. And I think they could be more focused on what those indicators are relating to the labor market itself. So, you know, again, a little bit of a conflation of different types of language here that's probably not helpful, particularly when there's a fair amount of developmental work, particularly in labor markets associated with community resilience itself and those indicators. So probably need a little bit of background research there to make sure that we're measuring the right things uh, along the way. And finally, as an adaptation priority, classic procurement and acquisitions resilience. So I imagine of many of the departments that they're planning for the future and they're just reforming their departments to get ready for climate change. The Department of Labor, they're dealing with these things right now. I'm curious, like you think of the Pacific Northwest heat wave, is the Department of Labor, were they designed to be a resource now to help in these events that that are occurring, you know, at the moment? Yeah, there are some disaster preparedness and response dimensions at the Department of Labor, but that's historically not within their core ambit. Usually the Small Business Administration, among others, is filled that gap uh, in terms of engagement and caseload management and things like that. So it's a, it's a good question. What is that capacity? And I think right now what we see is a lack of statutory authority or delegation um, to infer, engage further in that, in that context. So let's get on to the next one. I'm excited to hear about these guys because they've been talking climate even during maybe hostile administrations, but I'm talking about NASA. Yeah, NASA. This is exhausting to go through, but extremely, I mean, exhausting in all the best ways. It's a page turner, right? It's like... (laughs) It's like reading Ministry for the Future or something. Like you feel super engaged when you go through this. And and let me, before we get into NASA's climate action plan, as it is entitled, let me just acknowledge that Sam Higuchi, who recently retired, I think last year maybe, from NASA, led this charge among others, but really led the adaptation charge. And someone needs to give this guy an award. I mean, he is a national hero. He was a complete visionary who brought folks together from across the federal government to keep the dialogue going for years and years. He talked about stuff people didn't even understand that's now actually happening today. If you're out there listening, give this guy like a National Congressional Medal of Amazing because he's a true unsung hero uh, who deserves to be recognized. And I just want to acknowledge, too, as everything was shutting down around climate change during the, the previous administration, Sam was able to keep up these adaptation meetings at people would come and speak at. And, you know, I I don't know how he did it, but he kept them 
up. So yes, credit to you, Sam. Yeah. Years and years and years, he had the foresight to see where we are today. And we owe a lot of what we see in this plan uh, to his vision. Now, there's a lot of people there. I mean, NASA is a big place. He worked with a lot of people. He has support from a lot of people. He wasn't the only person, but I think it's worth recognizing the legacy. So if you're listening out there, someone give this guy an award because, I mean, his, his family history, his story, like his life story is just amazing. So anyway, if someone's going to write a book or give this guy an award, he, he deserves that recognition. All right, let's get into it. Priority adaptation action area number one, ensure access to space, right? Core mission here, infrastructure resilience, engineering resilience, rather for infrastructure operations. Really, they're going through an exhaustive and extensive evaluation of uh, their facilities, their supply chain vulnerabilities, right down to rare earth minerals. And they're incorporating that into enterprise risk management. You know, they acknowledge that launch sites are going to, in many cases, going to be need to be hardened or even relocated. One of a few agencies that really acknowledge that we're, they're going to have to relocate and think about managed relocation. There's a lot of higher order thinking here about scientific intelligence for future adaptations. Like what do we need as a matter of an, in technological measurement science and an underlying intelligence of the organizations themselves to think about not just today's understanding of adaptation, but adaptive capacity in the future. And in that sense, there's a real eye for maladaptation explicitly. Yeah, there's a kind of funny thing I would cite maybe an embarrassing citation to one of their accomplishments for beach nourishment in Wallops Beach. Because <laughs> if you know anything about ocean and coastal management, beach nourishment is not exactly your higher order uh, coastal adaptation intervention. But nonetheless, it just demonstrates that they're out there thinking about these things, uh, engaged and evaluating what they're doing along the way. So it's a kind of internal self-reflection. I'll I'll cut them a a lot of slack in that regard. Priority adaptation area number two is integrate climate adaptation into agency and center master plan. So NASA has an agency master plan. They're thinking beyond that 20-year horizon, right? There is a 20-year horizon in the master plan, but they're trying to push it beyond that, really think of what does adaptation mean uh, for the agency itself and the centers? Because each of the centers that NASA has across the country have their own master plans. And also, how do you think about co-benefits with climate mitigation along the way? The next priority adaptation area or action rather is integrate climate risks into risk analysis and agency resilience planning. So they have, they're created or in process of creating the agency resilience framework and incorporating that within enterprise risk management. You know, when you get into this a little bit more, you begin to see that this is, looks a lot like what we call outcome vulnerability assessment and really hazard mitigation. So it's a, it's very much a kind of shock not necessarily shock and stress or orientation to a particular scale that we would call disaster resilience, which is perfectly fine. But I think, and that's, I think that would be to be expected in the context of exposure sensitivity, particularly design sensitivity within the context of engineering resilience. I mean, that's all kind of in the wheelhouse of the technical capacity of NASA. But I, I also think that it's time for them to probably because these are the most sophisticated unit other than maybe GSA or DOD in the country, it's probably time for them to begin to recognize the different types of resilience and the relationship between processes and outcomes. And so, yeah, engineering and disaster resilience are critically important from a design management point of view and a risk management point of view, but you also need to think about ecological resilience and also need to think about community resilience uh, as well, among other sort of critical variants that are now have made the transition from science to policy. So they're getting there, they've got that foundation, and I think they'll be 
able to build upon this uh, in the future. Adaptation action number four, update climate modeling to better understand agency threats and vulnerabilities. So here they're thinking about what can we do to develop that next generation of climate models, thinking about supporting weather forecasting for water and energy cycle modeling, and really going a step further to map asset level hazard exposure. Again, if this is where NASA and GSA need to work together if they are not already and get together with other agencies. If you are going to spatialize asset level hazard exposure, you know, you're going to need some geotechnical coordination of data and files and formats. And that's actually already happening. Um, there is a kind of, I forget what it's called. There's a geographic technical council or something in the federal government that's already working on this, but I assume that that level of coordination will percolate down to bring together GSA and NASA, among others, to if we are going to have this kind of asset level exposure mapping and interface for their own management and portfolio management, then it really needs to be standardized. I not a strong sense that that's happening, but I get a better sense that those processes are in place. And, and that sense is somewhat external to my review of this document. Okay. Adaptation action area number five, advanced aeronautic research for technologies and processes that reduce contribution to climate change. So they're actually balancing mitigation and adaptation considerations here. Obviously, there's a big ambition to reduce the GHG footprint of the aviation sector, but there's also, and to reduce damages from facilities that indirectly reduce GHG. So I love the way they've connected the idea that resilience and adaptation may actually have you know, positive impacts in climate mitigation. I really like that connection. And of course, that plays out in the resilience of the aviation supply chain itself, which they talk about. You know, One thing that I think is missing here, I think this is a big gap, is two things. One is that we're ha- going to have more turbulence with climate change. We're already beginning to see that. You know, you get up to a cruising altitude and the pilot's looking for smooth air. Well, with climate change, for a lot of different reasons, there's less smooth air, at least at the altitude that planes fly at. And so I think uh, thinking about the uh, underlying fuel efficiency, but also the underlying safety dimensions is going to require some uh, orientation there in terms of design and engineering. Also, there's another dimension here, which is closer to your home, Doug, where it's extremely hot in the summer, in some cases so hot that the runways are simply not long enough to for planes, particularly flame, planes that are making transcontinental flights that are heavily laden with fuel. The runways just simply aren't long enough because of the low density of air associated in extremely hot areas. And so uh, airports are going to need to adapt their infrastructure. Air traffic control is going to need to adapt the way they manage the airspace in these contexts. And there's a lot of brittleness already within our system of air transport as it relates to thunderstorms and regional, a particular thunderstorm in Dallas could reverberate all across the system and really lead to a lot of cancellations, a lot of wasted fuel. You know, <laughs> there's a lot of implications here where adaptation and mitigation begin to converge and none of that's really represented here. So I'm hoping um, DOT talks about it a little bit, actually in the context of the FAA, but I think NASA and FAA probably need to work together on integrating that approach. Finally, there's climate vulnerability assessments, and it's super sophisticated in the sense that we have both quant and qual approaches. They're really thinking about how they align data indicators and impacts for physical risk. They're looking at dependency and interdependency of for physical infrastructure exposure itself. They're thinking institution-wide in terms of how do they make that data, that analysis accessible and transparent, 
um, to different users and user groups. And really thinking in, in one example of that is the idea of mapping the digital ecosystem of their supply chain for sort of upstream and downstream effects and engagement. And so really smart stuff here. A lot of places for connections. Maybe this isn't the time to kind of map out their own internal connections. I think it's always worth recognizing that, you know, a lot of these connections that are quite productive may not necessarily be memorialized in these plans. And it's really dependent on the relationships that these public servants have with each other. And it's not necessarily that the White House, you know, directs some council to get something done. No, it's people who actually know each other, socialize and connect around a common mission or interest that actually produce some of the most positive relationships and productive relationships in the federal government. And again, I want to end on NASA and just say that this is what Sam Higuchi did. He built those relationships all across the federal government that are, again, yielding positive benefits uh, here today. Okay, so I want you to just clear something up for me. I should know this, but I don't. So NASA, people don't realize that they have this incredible Earth Science Division and, you know, the, the satellite imagery. And there's all these different things they're doing. You'd mentioned the modeling. So is there overlap? Like we talked about NOAA in the previous episode. Is there overlap in what they're doing or they have just completely different missions? Because sometimes I think, well, are they kind of doing the same thing here? Is that an issue? Just please clear that up. I, I've never really kind of dug into that. No, it's extremely well aligned. NASA is not a very large entity, actually. It's it's smaller than people may realize. It may be sort of geographically dispersed with different sites along the way and launch sites and things like that and research centers, but it's actually a relatively small agency that's well within the range of manageable coordination. So I think when you see these parallel activities in science and applied science coming together, because remember, NASA originally is an applied science agency. It's not really a science agency. It's really the convergence of applied science and science where NASA really excels. And I, I would argue that it's historically been well integrated. All right. So let's pivot once again. We're going to the Social Security Administration. Oh, Social Security Administration 2021 Climate Action Plan, checking the box, climate literacy and workforce, facilities, operations, procurement, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. They're mixing and matching resilience and sustain- sustainability in their terminology and in their usage. It's just really difficult to navigate and to sort of get through. There's a very novel approach to facility vulnerability assessments that's looking at a number of things, including indoor air quality and employee health, uh, as well as even things like vector-borne disease transmission. So, you know, even though this resilience and sustainability and the kind of language is all over the place and it's difficult to navigate, when you get to the vulnerability assessment, I mean, massive bonus points for looking at indoor air quality. Uh, We know that that has, at least in my little world, that has um, immediate implications in terms of human and occupant health uh, and is something that is closely connected or or has um, some measure of attribution to climate change. They're also looking at planning for inundation and coastal facilities. And what I think is really interesting here is that they're thinking about how do we get people social security checks when the banking system is disrupted from extreme events, right? They're actually really thinking about continuity and how they reach people in in moments and periods of disruption. I guess what's missing in my mind, and maybe this isn't necessarily missing at this stage, but maybe what's an opportunity looking forward is, you know, can they model with OSHA and EPA, you know, future rise in disability? claims. I would guess that they're 
particularly among blue collar workers or those working outside, that there could be some real implications in future disability claims with extreme weather. And not just extreme weather, just shifts in our daily weather that are beyond our capacity to to, uh, operate in in a healthy context. And also thinking about aging population and particularly aging population in high risk areas, which would um, by implication shift the service areas from which they're operating. And by the way, we're going to get to this in a little bit. The IRS is thinking about this. So Social Security Administration is not, but IRS has got to uh, got to collect those tax dollars, and they are thinking about that shift in underlying demographics associated with the geography of risk, uh, if you will, and underlying service implications and impacts from climate change. So not necessarily missing, but maybe an opportunity going forward. Okay, so this next department, they've been in the news a lot lately, and we have this new legislation, the Build Back better. And DOT seems to be at the center of those discussions and where money's going to be spent. Does this action plan represent that they're ready to kind of deal with this new found funding? Okay. Well, maybe it says everything in the title, Climate Action Plan Revitalizing Efforts to Bolster Adaptation and Increase Resilience. Well, as we know, increasing resilience doesn't all isn't always a good thing. Sometimes it leads to maladaptive outcomes. Just had to say that. Terribly <laughs> academic critique and not helpful here at all. But from a technical point of view, that's important. And guess what? There's a lot of people at DOT who actually know that. So off the bat, climate education, working with TRB, the Transportation Research Board, a part of the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine. Critical. I love that idea of connecting with TRB to develop that climate education, right? This is an explicit connection with the academy. TRB is enormous, has a tremendous amount of work on climate for years now. I love that acknowledgement. We can't do it alone. We're going to partner with those people who are really engaged in this stuff. And by the way, there's state departments of transportation all around the country who do just unbelievable work in, in climate. And if you're interested, look at Minnesota Department of Transportation. They've got some really interesting stuff, particularly as snow begins to shift to ice. Okay, so they get into asset management, supply chain resilience, procurement, yada, yada, yada. I just want to acknowledge that Department of Transportation has historically had a very strong basis in engineering resilience because after 9-11, they got a ton of money to, for hazard mitigation or multi-hazard mitigation in engineering resilience to protect among multi-hazards and perils, including uh, domestic terrorism, but also ultimately to have associations with climate change uh, in terms of the engineering resilience. So uh, there's a lot of expertise historically at the Department of Transportation in a lot of different areas. What I think is really interesting about this plan is that it's a super good inventory of transportation-specific impacts. So the O&M costs of heat and ice on roads, driver fatigue when you're driving in bad weather. I mean, gosh, I've had that. I was driving through bands of hurricane ice. It was just, you know, I can imagine how difficult that can be if you're a trucker. For instance, simply more car crashes from bad weather, rail buckling, rails buckling from heat, increased temperatures that limit plane payload and range capacity, um, air traffic control disruptions from severe weather, as we talked about, reduced access to shipping docks and shoreline navigation equipment. I'm seeing you know, there's a sense here that they're really engaged in this. And part of their commitment here is to create, or it's actually already been created, is the Department of Transportation's Climate Change Research Center, which will be led by a chief science officer. So I I really like what they're really trying to get at here. So let's talk about their adaptation action priorities. Number one, incorporate resilience and adaptation into grant and loan programs. Not real specific, but, you know, we'll give them time. I like what they're thinking there. Develop resilience and adaptation guidance for states and metropolitan planning organizations. So MPOs. MPOs are critically important because whenever a region of a certain size has to spend federal transportation dollars, it's the one infrastructure sector that the federal government is actually heavily involved in. 
they have to think about regional connections, not just at a county basis or not just at a city basis. So I think internalizing of resilience and adaptation considerations and guidelines into MPOs is a really good way to kind of mainstream this into, you know, annual expenditures, very large annual expenditures in transportation. They acknowledge the reliance on interagency support with GSA, NIST, NIBS, Department of Energy, NOAA. So, you know, again, you see how these networks within the federal government play out and they're acknowledged you know, strengths and weaknesses and where they can draw in terms of subject matter expertise. And you really see that well represented here. Again, Department of Transportation has always been very well networked, very active in adaptation engagements across the federal government. And, you know, the robustness of this plan, I think, is, is representative of that. There's one downside for this is the kind of different action areas that were written by different people. So it wasn't particularly well synthesized between what I would say external and internal missions. And maybe that's just, you know, you need a better editor here. But I think that was one of the sort of challenges in getting through this. They acknowledge a lack of training and skilled staff and resilience and adaptation. Uh, and really, that reinforces that idea of developing both a general curriculum as well as a specialized curriculum for p- any particular areas. And again, I think TRB, the Transportation Research Board, can help them get there. So they're doing an inventory of assets and equipment. And again, we would hope that that would be in coordination with GSA, NASA, and others along the way. So what is missing? There are some big things here missing relating to adaptation. One is, and again, maybe it's not missing. Maybe this is, we should position this not as a failure, but as an opportunity for the next go, right? Because these things are living and breathing documents. They're not stationary. And that's not the goal here. The goal is to kind of learn. So here's what I think the opportunity is going forward. Let's start with equity considerations and environmental justice and, and start there. One is acknowledging that low to moderate income households have a disproportionate reliance on mass transportation, and particularly mass transportation in areas that has are highly exposed areas, right? There's usually some correlation or uh, coincidence between environmental justice areas, which are high risk exposure, and accessibility to mass transit systems themselves. I've done some of this research in Boston looking at, and, and that future doesn't look bright. I mean, we're talking about, you know, increased extreme events or changes, slight shifts in mean associated with what is more regularized extreme events, you know, really having huge impacts on the capacity of the system to get people from A to B. So we really also have to think about, so there's a kind of like core resilience, both engineering resilience and community resilience ways to look at this. They really need to be on top of this, I think, in supporting mass transit agencies, huge need there. They also need to think about land use adaptations and transit-oriented development, because this is where the co-benefits arise between mitigation and adaptation. We have to think, okay, people are going to move. Most people, in terms of their resettlement, are going to be inter-county movement. It's not really, I mean, some people move across the country, and you know, I, I talk about that a lot, and speculative and semi-empirical in, in different ways. But many people believe that a lot of the, the adaptive resettlement will be in relatively local, and that's going to shape our land use configurations. And to really think about sustainable urban development, for instance, we've got to think about how transportation is the key driver or catalyst of that resettlement and redevelopment. Otherwise, we're just going to produce suburban sprawl. So you need to think about land use and TOD. And I think 
you know, integrating into the NPOs is a really strong way to get there. I just didn't see that thinking necessarily represent. And I'm hoping maybe that's the next step. You're also going to have to think about new analytical forms of modeling to begin to plan for future transportation demand. There's great work that happens at the EPA, at the USGCRP, what we call shared socioeconomic pathways, SSPs that are happening both domestically and abroad with the IPCC. There's a lot of new modeling out there that helps that um, already as part of engineering plant, I'm sorry, transportation planning that um, is bringing climate exposure and sensitivity into the modeling work. And I, I think we need to acknowledge the complexity of that and the extent to which advancing new forms of future demand and supply functions for transportation are really a central analytical ambition for their new climate center. So again, it's not what's missing. It's an opportunity, I think, to expand on uh, what is to come as we advance adaptation within Department of Transportation. All right, Jesse, now we're on to the Department of Veterans Affairs. Okay, check the box. Facilities, operations, delivery of healthcare services. We got that. Their adaptation orientation here is new design for facilities. And also, I think it's an obligation they're going to have and uh, already have as it relates to budgeting. It's thinking about resilience and adaptation costs and disclosure of those costs and liabilities to OMB. Here, they're also looking at vulnerabilities and more demand for healthcare from climate impacts, including exacerbation. Uh, of social determinants of health. So they're really thinking this through. Some of their adaptation investments are developing a biosurveillance system to monitor conditions and symptoms associated with climate change. By the way, there was a a great story this weekend of a woman in Canada who was um, diagnosed with climate change. The first person sort of widely acknowledged uh, as being clinically diagnosed with climate change. And she met sort of all the conditions for doing so in, in, in a clinical sense. So anyway, they're thinking about exposure via financed homes as well. They're very active in that regard and and VA financing. But really, at the end of the day, it's about integrating climate financial risk into underwriting, into asset management, well-articulated and uh, well-thought-out plan here. Well, now that brings us to, I think, a larger discussion around financial issues. And so we're going to start that off with the Department of Treasury. This is perhaps one of the more challenging, more complicated, and more complex uh, areas from which the government is engaged in resilience and adaptation work. So I'm going to try to go quickly so we don't get bogged down, but just really hit some highlights. So again, checking the box on operations, mission, you know, rethinking about what their mission and how it can be uh, external mission and how that can be reshaped by climate change is important. Here, they're developing a climate literacy work group. So they're being explicit again about their curriculum, which I like to see, and thinking about that climate literacy, both in terms of engaging outsiders about their own household financial literacy, but also a climate literacy in-house as well. They have a very smart matrix that connects climate impacts with very precise operations of the Department of Treasury, which is a real really interesting way to think about how particular types of climate impacts relate to particular types of impacts. So yes, Treasury is thinking about population migration and climate change. Why? Because people take their money with them when they move. (laughs) And yes, the Treasury is thinking about how the IRS can collect taxes from people and businesses impacted by climate change, where they'll be moving, but also how they can offer help 
as well. So it's really interesting. Very smart metrics or sort of ambition here with uh, building resilience and formally adaptive capacity of operations with the acknowledgement that the treasury is really working uh, worldwide. They have facilities and real property. They have emergency facilities. They have a vast supply chain. And they're really thinking about um, certain technologies. And I'll just highlight one, you know, the idea of reduction on papers, checks and moving towards a paperless system. You know, the Federal Reserve sort of struggled with this because there's a lot of people who rely on paper checks who don't necessarily have the accessibility to the banking system in ways that we think we can all just, you know, use our phone or our card or in, you know, a cashless world. So, you know, I get what they're trying to do there and there'll be some challenges along the way, but they're really thinking systematically. And I think that shows. I want to transition to Executive Order 14030 and an associated publication called A Roadmap to build a climate resilient economy. And what we hear what we get here is a climate risk accountability framework and they're talking about mobilizing the private sector for net zero transition and protecting vulnerable populations and managing financial risk within the federal government. They're talking about global leadership and they're talking about safeguarding the financial system. I want to skip over all of that because we could really have a whole episode on that and really get to what they call their whole of government implementation strategy. And there's a couple of things that they're doing. The first thing that they cite in terms of financial regulation is that many governments around the the world are getting into climate risk assessment for financial and non-financial companies and banks and insurance companies. What they're really talking about here is stress testing and scenario analysis through stress testing. Sometimes stress testing doesn't necessarily need scenario. It's a very complicated methodological area, but they're not saying the dirty word of stress testing because banks don't really care for that. But what they're really talking about is a developing scenario analysis to begin to test the portfolios. And to get to that level of analysis, um, they're citing country-specific activities for climate disclosures. We talked about the Task Force for Climate Financial Disclosure which is now a kind of global standardizing body and guidelines, they're talking explicitly about incorporating that within not only the private sector, but holding the federal government in many ways accountable to a similar set of processes. The executive order directs the Secretary of the Treasury as chair of the Financial Stability Oversight Council, FSOC, to further get into climate. We're, this is something we had called for at the CFTC, and we're going to come back to FSOC here in a little bit. Again, FSOC is the Financial Stability Oversight Council. This is all the banking regulators getting together and thinking about financial security. Also in this, in terms of financial regulation, the Secretary of the Treasury is directing the Federal Insurance Office to work with state regulators, because most insurance is regulated at the state level, to understand how climate impacts the insurance markets. And a lot of what this has to do with is looking at the capacity of stress testing insurance companies. David Jones, who's running, I think, for state Senate who was in California, who was formerly a state insurance commissioner, just one of the national leaders in this, he did that California, they stress tested insurance companies at a portfolio level, um, really thinking through different scenarios and outcomes associated with climate and climate impacts and how that would shape the insurance industry domestically. So we need to take some of that learning and, and experimentation and see how that plays out. They're also talking about working with the SEC to think about relevant disclosures for the insurance uh, industry. So another dimension they're talking about is American savings and pensions. And this is a huge shift. And I don't want to get too far into this, but basically the Department of Labor is going to be allowing plans and retirement plans and investment funds that are subject to what we call ERISA, Employment Retirement Income Security Act of 1974, to be able to, as fiduciaries of these plans, 
to consider environmental, social, and governance, ESG, and sustainability and climate dimensions in their management, right? So this really can open up. There's about $12.5 trillion of asset under management in ERISA plans in the United States. It could really open up the, the floodgates. But it needs to be done in a way that we're measuring resilience, adaptation, and res- sustainability, particularly sustainability and resilience as it's sort of there's a lot of rhetoric out there, but what does that really mean when we're talking about investments? How do those, from an impact investing point of view, what does that really mean? So there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. SEC is working on that, but they acknowledge in this, that you have to align that with what the UK is doing, what the EU is doing, what Japan is doing. So there's a kind of global alignment of how we set those standards. They also talk about this in terms of federal procurement. And there's two major, I would call sort of major initiatives here that new regulations really from the Federal Acquisitions Regulatory Council. The federal government uh, in 2020 procured about $600 billion billion dollars worth of goods and services. So enormous impact on the economy. So here are the two regulations. Companies with substantial federal contract federal contract activities must disclose their climate risks and greenhouse gas emissions and establish a science-based reduction. So right, so we're kind of forcing this kind of TCFD model or disclosure model on contractors or substantial federal contractors. Also requiring federal agencies to consider climate risks and greenhouse emissions in their own procurement decisions and then allowing preference to proposals from suppliers with lower social costs for greenhouse gas emissions. It's really interesting. I mean, calculating social cost of carbon, I mean, there's some complexities there, some real debates, but in theory, that could be a very powerful mechanism for change and and really thinking through climate risk. Federal budgeting is another dimension of the kind of whole government approach. And here, the federal government they acknowledge has huge exposure in terms of increased costs, lost revenue, knockoff effects to the broader economy. And there's two dimensions here. And they basically flow through requirements of the OMB for financial um, reporting. And they're basically saying departments and agencies are going to have to submit plans and go through formal financial reporting that incorporates climate and discusses climate. And I think, you know, it's a kind of discussion in more qualitative terms. We haven't got quite got to those quantifications, but they acknowledge as we have called for previously for the Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board, FASA, which is kind of like the, the, they, they said, the, the accounting standards for the federal government. They task them with working on climate-related risk assessments and disclosures. And basically, how's the federal government going to account for this formally? And to sum it all up, they basically say, you know what, president's budget next year in fiscal year 2023 is going to include a long-term budget outlook for this. So this is really important stuff. The federal government is also a lender and an underwriter, and they're directing HUD and USDA and VA to really think about origination under underwriting standards for federally insured mortgages and thinking about flood and climate risk in particular. How's that going to shape the portfolio? How's that going to shape access? And you know, one of the things that they they cite, and let me just quote here, advance, quote, climate-related risk and underwriting policies and practices, while balancing, and I'm emphasizing they're balancing these efforts with other priorities such as housing, affordability, equity, and environmental justice, access to credit, and industry alignment, end quote. There's some really tough questions and trade-offs about what happens when we start to impose a, a kind of economic geography of risk and a delineation of areas of risk that may lead to further marginalization or undermining of housing affordability. 
And when we look at the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, we may see adaptation of banks that may look a lot like discrimination or at least historic patterns of discrimination, but may be entirely based in, let's say, deterministic ways on physical climate risk exposure and not necessarily one relating to demographic creditworthiness or or some other malintent. So there's some really difficult trade-offs here and things that we haven't come to terms with as a country from a legislative point of view about how exactly we are going to adapt our financial system, yet continue to think about the equal accessibility to those financial services and those financial products. And finally, the they're thinking about you know the infrastructural dimensions. They do talk about the National Climate Task Force as consolidating different climate services and climate information with NOAA and FEMA and OSTP. They're working to coordinate a level of information that can drive both pu- public and private sector engagement. And this is a challenge because as we push and develop climate climate services in the United States and more, let's say, robust climate modeling, we're running up against some real regulatory challenges. For instance, one of those is in California. And the California, as an insurance regulator now, they, they're basically refusing to utilize climate modeling. They use very deterministic models of risk that are basically distorting insurance and mortgage markets. There's very good research on this uh, by a group uh, at the University of California, Berkeley. And so, the, you know, how are we going to exactly validate some of this? This more advanced and experimental modeling and information, or let's say data or climate services. And like, how do we validate that for purposes of broader public and private sector utilization? There's some real open questions about that. So I want to turn for a second and talk about FSOC and talk about Financial Stability Oversight Council. And here they released a report. It's called the Report on Climate-Related Financial Risk. It's really worth reading. They talk about a number of different things, but they're setting up their own staff. They're setting up their own reporting requirements among the members. This is FDIC, the Treasury, OCC, Office of Control of the Currency, Treasury Department itself. I'm sure I'm leaving others out. CFTC is a member. And so they're developing their own financial literacy and education. They're thinking about Actually, let me back up and say this. One of the reasons I think this FSOC report is really good, again, report on climate-related financial risk, because here you have a group of five or six government agencies, and it's a model for coordination. And I think this is sort of where we stand now in the in the across the U.S. government and the federal government is how do we think about coordination of all of these sort of disparate but related activities? So here, there's a commitment to coordinate for data inventory figuring out what data they need, how they will proceed with procurement plans, developing data sharing agreements. Believe it or not, it's not easy for federal agencies to share data with each other. It's extremely, extremely difficult. And in many cases, it's actually just easier to go out and create or duplicate your own data set than trying to get it from another agency. So as we work together to develop scenarios, forecasts, and other tools that begin to standardize things like TCFD or disclosure compliance, we really have to think critically about how we integrate, particularly the flow of information, because one of the things that they're doing that we need to do in our own house across the federal government and across all of these adaptation plans is develop consistent data standards, definitions, and relevant metrics, right? And I think looking at this, you see that ambition in very productive ways. You know, there's a number of things they're get, they're getting at with TCFD compliance and disclosure, consistent measures, for instance, for scope one, two, and three emissions. You know, the SEC is working hard on disclosure for public companies. 
there's a number of things that we're going to see coming out in the coming months and really years that are going to bring some internal consistency from a regulation point of view. But I think what our adaptation resilience audience needs to take away is from an institutional perspective, this is, I think, a very strong model for how you begin to internally coordinate the standardization definitions and models, scenarios, and a type of flow of information that can help us understand what we're adapting to (laughs) and how implementation and what those underlying implementation and barriers to implementation begin to look like. All right, Jesse. So we're getting to the point where we're thinking about what the rest of the world is doing on these issues and COP26 is happening at the moment. So we're going to pivot to the U.S. Department of State and what are they up to? And that's going to lead into some other discussions around what's the international community thinking about adaptation? So what's going on there? Well, you know, we gave the State Department the award for climate ad- for their climate adaptation resilience right, plan for right. best design, beautifully designed. So let's just acknowledge the State Department killing it out there in terms of visual communications. Again, super important. You know, they're checking all the boxes in terms of vulnerability assessments and facilities and supply chain. You know, the State Department operates worldwide. But what they're talking about here is eco-diplomacy, sharing best practices with host nations, you know, the kind of greening diplomacy initiative. They're talking about incorporating climate literacy into the Foreign Service Institute. So they're really thinking about long-term education, but also personnel performance criteria. So they're really looking at this from a kind of operations and accounting point of view. I want to shift in that context to where we are with COP26 and just talk about a few things along the way. One, the United States government released the long-term strategy of the United States, Pathways to Net Zero Greenhouse Gas Emissions by 2050. So this is the kind, this is the kind of U.S. government's like, we're here for climate change. And again, this long-term strategy of the United States is climate mitigation focus. And fair enough, this is our climate mitigation plan, it's not our adaptation plan. But I think it would there would be some real opportunities here to look at co-benefits between climate mitigation and adaptation, as well as some conflicts, right? I mean, an example of a co-benefit would be, you know, adaptive agricultural practices that minimize irrigation, which is, by the way, a huge energy drag that can also support carbon sinks and soil. I mean, there's there's a lot of relationships between mitigation and adaptation. I think it would have been worth acknowledging that uh, in this context. In many ways, it reinforces a real need for the spatial dimensions of a national strategy for the United States in the sense that we need to give some geographic specificity to how, as a country, we're going to implement adaptation and the extent to which there are different regional and geographic environmental differentiations. I want to shift and put the mitigation plan aside and really talk about the president's emergency plan for adaptation and resilience prepare, which was released as part of COP26. This is more of a $3 billion four-page press release than a plan. And here, we're, you know, this is $3 billion that we're going to finance adaptation, not actually going, as I understand, to the adaptation funds, but it's money we're going to you know, dish out. And there's some real questions about scale and transactional costs and how we're going to do that. But you know, you have to step back and remember, $3 billion sounds like a lot of money, but you know, <laughs> we're facing like trillions of adaptation costs. I mean, there's some real, you know, any given city in America has billions of adaptation needs that are currently billions of dollars in any given city that are already sort of observed in the pipeline at some level of planning and development or even implementation. So 
is a very small amount of money, but hey, it's goodwill. We're trying to engage bilaterally or multilaterally with the world. And they cite here, of course, that the Treasury will be working with multilateral development banks to make sure that the lending of the World Bank and others is Paris aligned. There's resilient screening in that. And I think actually, you know, I, I sound like I'm coming down hard here. I think actually one of the real successes that we have had at COP26 is climate finance and the extent to which adaptation and resilience are now part of that conversation with climate finance now so more than ever. So actually, you know, I say I, I say somewhat pejoratively, this is the $3 billion, you know, press release. I mean, it is, but I think it is a reflection of a lot of other things that are happening as it relates to adaptation. So one of the things they say in this plan or prepare, again, it's more of an outline than a plan, is that USAID and NOAA and State Department are going to work on capacity building, information exchange, adaptation planning to support national adaptation plans. So let's, let me give, give you a little bit of quick background on this. In COP16 in 2010, they created something called the Cancun Adaptation Framework, and that created also something called the Adaptation Committee, which the UNFCC is really a sort of secretariat of. And the U.S. Is actually has a representative from the State Department that serves on the Adaptation Committee. I actually watched hours of their proceedings to see what they were up to. And basically what they do is they help countries produce what we call these national adaptation plans. In fact, national adaptation plans have been around since the Cancun Framework in 10, 2010. But they were really sort of elevated in a way after the Paris and so, uh, you know, what we call Article 7 in, in the Paris Accord, which really put forward an obligation of parties to not only make the intended national contributions, INDCs, but also what they call adaptation communications, which is basically countries saying, yeah, we're going to work on the climate mitigation. Here's our INDCs, but also here are our adaptation communications. That's a kind of update and a commitment to share what countries are doing on adaptation. 80% of the countries, uh, member countries globally or conference of parties have national adaptation plans. All G20 countries have adaptation plans. Argentina hasn't quite finished theirs. They're working on it, except for the United States. So I find it problematic and perhaps an opportunity for the United States to develop their own national adaptation plan. There's a little bit of a contradiction here. And I think this rubbed a lot of people the wrong way in Glasgow, that the United States releases this, you know, four page prepare plan or whatever it is. And or I, I think it's four pages. It's really, yeah, four page plan, you know, and about we're going to help countries with their national adaptation plans and yada, yada, yada. Yet we do not ourselves have a national adaptation. plan. I know I went through all G20, every single G20 country, really G19 because Argentina, who's in process, we're going to give them credit. Russia has a national adaptation plan. The United States does not have an adaptation plan. So I really think this is incumbent upon us. We did submit an adaptation communication of the United States on one of the first days in accordance with Article 7 of the Paris Accord. And when I look this up, it was a copy and paste job from kind of what someone, I assume, at the State Department thought were the key activities from adaptation and resilience. My understanding that this was not circulated among the agencies and departments. Or, And I think one of the most problematic dimensions of this, of this adaptation communication, one, it's not nearly, it's not thorough, it's not comprehensive, it's not strategic. It's a kind of hodgepodge of different things that the government's doing, not well organized. And really the worst part of this is it was not proofread. I mean, the first page had massive errors on it. I mean, this is the United States of America. We need to proofread 
I mean, how can anybody take us seriously on global climate change if we can't even proofread one of two major submissions that we make formally in the diplomatic process associated with these proceedings? I mean, is this where we are? I mean, is this the level of commitment we have as a country to adaptation that we can't proofread our adaptation communication in the United States and that we do not have a national adaptation plan, yet we're willing to go out there and help others create theirs? I mean... I mean, in all fairness, national adaptation plans were initially intended or oriented to support developing countries. But over time, particularly after Paris, countries put together national adaptation plans. If there's something that we've learned from the past, this episode and the prior episode, is like we're doing great work. There's a lot out there. I think we need to take a cue from FSOC and others and reflect on what, how do we coordinate? How do we get to the next step? What is the next step? And from a strategic point of view and from a cooperative point of view, I mean, just data sharing, we know, is a massive challenge within the federal government. So how do we develop a national adaptation plan? I I mean, again, maybe we didn't have the time to do that between the release of all these plans and and Glasgow. I'm going to cut folks some slack. I'm not going to cut folks slack on not proofreading a, a significant diplomatic communication. I, I, I think it's really a, a fundamental failure. And by the way, I went through all of these adaptation plans and read them in, I think, nearly word for word. There's great models out there on how to do this. Australia, the Netherlands, there are countries out there that we, I think, should be engaged with by multilaterally to develop our own adaptation. We have a lot to learn. I think it's a little bit arrogant for us to just preach and teach and not necessarily think about what we can learn. Well, the document itself, the the cover page, Adaptation Communication of the United States, in itself is a little confusing. Adaptation Communication, which could mean many other things, even an image on it. It really is. Well, that's a formal, that comes from the Paris Article 7 of the Paris Accord. I mean, it's a formal document that many countries are submitting. And let me get back to that because most countries submitted their national adaptation plan as their adaptation communication. And I think the challenge here and where some of the confusion has rested is that the adaptation committee, which is this sort of body that's created that's from uh, kind of sitting under the UNFCC, is they didn't quite clarify that and they haven't fully gotten fleshed out their, their communication plans and guidance for parties. So listen, maybe it's too early. Maybe I'm coming down too hard, but I think there's a real opportunity next go around for COP27 for us to have a national adaptation plan and to further engage the adaptation committee to make sure that we're doing that in alignment in in formatting and every other way, communicating that consistently so that we can really optimize our engagement both externally and internally. Well, I think it's a missed opportunity. You know, they might think of that they're going to just put all these various department adaptation plans together and say, "Hey, this is our national adaptation plan," which isn't the same thing. But to me, I'm always looking for communication opportunities and what a way to sort of engage with the public that we actually put some thought into this national adaptation plan. And communicating and public awareness would be just a big part of that, even though the plan itself would probably not be that great. Just that's the nature of these things. But just a platform to start communicating more around adaptation to the public. So that that's why I would like to see it independent of what, what's, you know, individual chapters and such. Okay, Jesse, we have covered a lot of ground here. Can you wrap things up for us? So I think we have covered a lot of ground. And I think that's a reflection of the positive and really 
sophisticated in many ways contributions that have been made across the federal government relating to adaptation planning. And I know I've made some critiques and maybe even a very strong criticism, particularly of our formalization of adaptation in our at Glasgow and in a kind of international facing dimension. But I think that there's a lot to be learned here, both domestic and in, in terms of international engagement with adaptation planning. So let's go over a few things that I think are critical or critical takeaways, if you will. One, I really do believe that we need a, a national adaptation plan, not just in, in accordance with what everyone else is doing in the world. Remember, we're the only G20 country without a national adaptation plan. Argentina sort of semi-counts, they're in process, but Russia has a national adaptation plan. We need a national adaptation plan. Why do we need it? We need it because we need a strategic vision for how these various plans and strategies relate to each other, right? And on some level, we need to you know, amplify our participation with the UNFCC and the Adaptation Committee. We need to help guide and shape and play a, a role as an international leader in adaptation. And we can learn, I think, from many countries in that process. But I think from a domestic point of view, we really need to think about how this plays out. And that means cross-agency and departmental coordination. And we got into the FSOC, you know, the Financial Stability Oversight Council adaptation work and sort of climate work. And that may seem very deep in the weeds. But one of the reasons I wanted to highlight it is because it's really highlighting the challenges of coordination and really the opportunities of how we think about sharing data, co-development of data. What are the methods and models that we can develop and co-develop together across the federal government? Heck, what are the common definitions which bind, let's say through legislative intent, our underlying actions, right? What are the scenarios that we share together across the agencies, right? So co-benefits, co-alignment is going to require some coordination. And it's even going to require, as FSOC highlights, foreign stakeholder coordination, right? Because other countries are doing things that have implications and impacts for us right here in the United States. So that's really important. And I think part of that is, I would even argue sort of more normatively that we need a national adaptation map. I mean, that may sound crazy, but I think we need a, geogra we need a geographic alignment of human and environmental geography. In that sense, very practically speaking, we need to take U.S. Global Change Research Program, USGCRP, and EPA, and all of these other models, things like shared socioeconomic pathways, to think about how shifting environmental and human geography are aligned with adaptation processes, right? The IRS cares about this, right? We saw not in the Treasury plan that the IRS is thinking about how people are moving around with climate change. And so we need to spatialize this. And part of that spatialization, I think, speaks to the idea that we need a kind of digital civic universe. And we have the U.S. Climate Resilience Toolkit, the USCRT, which is an extremely valuable model. But I think we need to think about multiple layers of stakeholder engagement and modes of information. So the final thing I want to highlight here in all these adaptation plans is this. This really relates and we need to relate this work, not only to what's happening in the federal government, but the bulk of the work that happens in state and local governments, right? We know that SHMCAPs, state hazard mitigation and climate adaptation planning, have converged as one of the primary and most effective ways that state-level adaptation planning is integrating with federal resources, models, and technical assistance. We need to amplify that, right? 
We need to think about how we streamline grant administration, fiscal alignment for applications, impact assessment, and reporting. Right now, all of these different federal tools and levers and grants and financial resources, they're operating in silos. They don't really relate to each other, and they're extremely expensive to utilize. It's not just free money. It has a huge amount of cost, and that money, guess what? We know with greater and greater resolution, there's a GAO reports on this, it's not reaching the ground. It's benefiting cities, it's benefiting you know, wealth, protecting wealth, but it's not necessarily connecting to the challenge on the ground. Does that mean we need to think about cost share waivers and just rethink that entire system? Yeah, probably, at least as it relates to mitigation and some adaptation types of investments. So I think at the end of the day, the biggest thing that we're doing here is actually in that context in economic decisions. And if the federal government is going to proceed with TCFD disclosure, that is hold itself accountable to the uh, its own carbon footprinting and to the disclosure of climate risk, physical and transition risk, as well as the private sector, that's going to be probably one of the most effective ways that we understand vulnerability and we understand and guide adaptation in this country. But at the end of the day, I think all of that's important. We have many models and opportunities for leadership and coordination, but we have to also think about the role of state and local governments, because guess what? They've been doing this not out of the opportunity, but out of the necessity. And there's a lot of learning that can happen in bridging adaptation planning, sort of knowledge and learning buying between state, local, and ultimately federal government. So I think that's the next frontier from which all of this work matures and advances in the interests of adapting the United States of America. All right, Jesse, I just want to say you have done everyone a great service taking a deep dive in these plans. No one reads them quite like you. You've, we're learning a ton. And obviously, this is a, an exciting time because all these different departments are thinking about adaptation. But I greatly appreciate you taking the time to read them and then coming on and sharing what you learned with my listeners. Again, Jesse, thanks. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Okay, Adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Jesse for coming on the podcast. I can't stress enough what Jesse has done here. He did a deep dive on all these new adaptation action plans and provided his incredibly valuable expert assessment on what they contain or don't contain. Hopefully, it'll be a resource to you and definitely share with your colleagues who want to learn more about what the whole of government approach is on adaptation. Don't forget to go back to the first episode to learn what the other federal departments are doing. I especially enjoyed our conversation around national adaptation plans. It is a serious problem and missed opportunity that the United States doesn't have one. Other countries have committed the time and resources on theirs years ago. As I said in the conversation with Jesse, independent of the content of the plan, it's a huge opportunity for the country to go national on communication. The public really has no clue what adapting to climate change really means. Almost none. You are hanging in the wrong circles if you think it's penetrating very far in the public's imagination. And adapting to climate change will be the most important thing we do in the next 50 to 100 years. But from a practical standpoint, a national plan would give local and state governments something to measure their own adaptation work against. Develop some national metrics. It would also supercharge the national climate assessment. Align the research from the assessments with the national plan. Hopefully the two efforts would benefit each other. And I think we realize climate work can disappear with a hostile administration. Design a national adaptation plan that is baked into the system. Give it a budget, embed disaster management and hazard mitigation into it. Those types of efforts generally garner bipartisan support. Don't create a national adaptation plan that will go straight to the bookshelf. Legislate it. 
The National Climate Assessment is mandated by Congress, so even a hostile administration has to complete it. Do something similar with an adaptation plan. It's really a fantastic chance to galvanize the adaptation community that isn't as cohesive as it should be. Okay, there's my soapbox, but I really think it's important. And again, thanks to Jesse for coming on and sharing his knowledge and creating this valuable resource. Don't forget to share far and wide in your own adaptation networks. Okay, a little bit of final housekeeping. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring a whole podcast episode of America Adapts. Sponsoring a podcast allows you to focus on the work that you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I frequently go on location and record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you, a wider diversity of guests, to participate. You will work with me to identify experts that represent the work that you're doing. And I've done these with various groups like NRDC, University of Pennsylvania Wharton, WWF, UCLA, Harvard, and so on. It's a chance to share your story with all my listeners. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. My previous sponsors have found the process actually pretty fun since there's a lot of creativity involved. Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together. At least that's what I think. So please reach out and let's have a conversation around this so you can learn more. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event, reach out. Folks, I speak a lot and you're going to enjoy it. I've been doing some keynote presentations and they are a lot of fun. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. Definitely check me out at americadapts.org. And for my regular listeners, podcasts rely on word of mouth. Please take a moment and plug America Adapts on your favorite social media feeds. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and I always reshare if you connect to me. I can't stress enough how important word of mouth recommendations are for podcast growth. And on that note, I love hearing from you. I need to hear from you to know what you're doing. And over the years, I've been hearing from folks and learning the sort of work that they're doing or why they're interested in this topic of adaptation or just reach out and say hi. It is a highlight for me. I truly love it. I'm at americadapts at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.